Hello, everyone, and welcome to a Random History Podcast. Uh, This time around, we're going to discuss the American Expeditionary Force of North Russia, also known as the Polar Bear Expedition. Uh, As always, I look forward to your input. Uh, You can reach me via email, Twitter, or our website, randomhistorypodcast.com. Love to hear your feedback, and I can't wait to hear back from you. Also, love to hear some suggestions for future episodes. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy. We take sponsors to our podcast very seriously. And while there's a lot of big name options out there, there's currently none for us. I mean, heck, we even tried dollar doorknobs and they refused to pick us up. But in the meantime, though, a local business stepped up to the plate and decided to sponsor us on episode one and forward. So I'd like to introduce to you our sponsor, Ned's Authentic Chinese Food and Buffet. They decided to sponsor us, so we can't thank them enough, and we strongly encourage our listeners to patron our sponsor. They can be found at 622 West American Way in Chicago, or online at nedschinese.com. So please, visit our sponsor and enjoy. And remember, when you think authentic Chinese food, think Ned's. Hi, and welcome to a Random History Podcast. This is episode two in our coverage on the Polar Bear Expedition, the American Expeditionary Force in North Russia. So episode one, we covered kind of what it was we were going to cover. So now in this episode, we're going to kind of start digging into things a little bit. Uh, This episode specifically, we're going to discuss uh, the United States as it relates to World War One and why it wasn't quite um, there, why it took so long to join. And then in episode three, we're going to talk a little bit about um, the state of Russia, uh, the state that it was in, I guess, to be more proper. And then we're going to d- dive straight into um, the polar bear expedition itself. Once we have the background of, you know, what the goals were and why those goals were formed and why it seemed like a good idea. The U.S. was not interested in involving itself in a European affair. I think that's a fair point to start with. You know, at least that was the overall consensus in the United States. This feeling was especially strong in the West. Woodrow Wilson seems to have been a dove in a hawk cabinet. While history will remember President Wilson as the president who steered us through World War I, uh, although he ran on a re-election to keep us out of the war, though history will also remember President Wilson as a racist. He did hold a screening of the movie Birth of a Nation at the White House and was a supporter of segregation to the point that he even allowed segregation of government offices and even once told a civil rights leader that segregation, quote, removed the friction among the races. Now, also, he continued the segregation of the army and kept white officers over black troops. So, yeah, he was a racist. But he did later have 14 points for peace to help warring white people reconcile. The 14 points did not work out well for keeping the peace and were also not entirely adopted. Now, you may be asking why I bring up race in this discussion. Of course, at the time of this recording of this episode, there are widespread protests for racial equality around the world. Yet, this is not why I bring this up. The U.S. is going through a time termed in you know retrospect as the racial nadir, where the process towards racial reconciliation is moving backwards and fast. The domestic politics at this time are critical to understanding why the U.S. wants to stay out of Europe's war. Many ideas, tactics, and strategies for the war in Europe come from the U.S. Civil War, which many historians refer to as the first modern war. Now, this is because both sides have advanced modern weapons inserted into this classical European style of formations. 
you know, it's kind of a neat way to ask, you know, what if Napoleon had machine guns and rifles instead of flintlock smoothbore muskets? Um, the war in Europe began in 1914. So for perspective, there's veterans of the Civil War. They're still alive. And while the U.S. had fought a major war since the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, which Spain was not really the world power they once were, and they didn't have advanced weaponry in place for the war, and they were subsequently trounced. Now, they did have some advanced weapons, but they hadn't had them deployed. If you look at the uh, battle for the Philippines, the Spanish did have some advanced weapons. They just didn't have them in, you know, in use yet. So um, in Europe, these bleeding edge weapons were in use, but the tactics and strategy or weapon systems integration that is needed had not yet been updated. The acid test of war was really still taking place. So that moves us back to the U.S. now. In, you know, is there an army or even really a United States as in, uh, you, know, a, a, you know, a united country? And yes, to both. Uh, in the U.S., we have racial divisions at this time, right? We have a rising Ku Klux Klan. There's still Civil War veterans who are around to tell people about the horrors of modern war. So it's not just skin color uh, was making the nation diverse. There was many first-generation immigrants from the primary belligerent uh, parties that had immigrated to the U.S. prior to the war. So truly, there's sympathies on both sides. As if none of this was enough, the U.S. gained its independence from a European nation, right, Great Britain. And so while the U.S. was a rising power, it kept its influence in the Americas primarily. In fact, I'm not sure U.S. boots had laid foot in Europe before they entered World War I. Even in the war against Spain, the U.S. did not invade Spain, just her possessions. To review, the U.S. had no historical grievance, no past practice of involvement, and a historical aversion to European politics. Sure, there was many on the eastern seaboard that were hawks, but the West was even further removed and lacked any wanton for war. They were doves. So this kind of leads us now to the army. Let's talk about that a little bit. President Wilson, for you know all of his many faults, knew the U.S. needed to have a professional army prepared for what his cabinet felt was inevitable. The excuse uh, reason came in June 1915. This is when Mexican um, revolutionaries began conducting cross-border raids into the U.S. The Mexican expedition or, as it was officially titled at the time, the Punitive Expedition, was to chase down the bad guys in Mexico, kill them, so they stopped crossing the border. Now, famed Pancho Villa, once an American media darling, was obviously upset after the U.S. gave tacit recognition to his rival, Carranza, and provided rail support for troop transport that led to the smashing of Villa's main army. So... The U.S. allowed Carranza's troops to take a train, and this train went up into American territory and back down into Mexico, and that's, of course, where the battle took place. But Villa, being upset, he summarily executed a few Americans who happened to be on a train in Mexico uh, doing work for a private company, and then launched an attack on a U.S. Army camp, killing some soldiers, civilians, stealing some horses, machine guns, and then, you know, because they needed something else to do, they burned down the town, you know, just for good measure. On the surface, it was a win. Villa had attacked a military camp, stolen weapons, and raised a town. However, he lost over 60 men to the U.S.'s eight soldiers. So no, that's not a good exchange. But 
It was the optics, right? He did get what he was looking for. Villa wanted intervention in Mexico, but not to go too far down this rabbit hole. Villa wanted the Americans on Mexican soil for domestic reasons, as it would likely cause a loss of support for his rival, Carranza. Anyway, the U.S. used this as an excuse to greatly increase the regular army and National Guard in what is called the Great Call-Up. The call-up showed large problems in the organization and logistics of the armed forces. There was no standardized training for the National Guard, for instance. So many states sent units to the expedition with only basic knowledge of drill. Supplies were slow to arrive, if they even arrived. For those that think bureaucracy is some sort of new invention for the United States that we did not have back in the good old days, requisition forms. They were used to request supplies, and the Army ran out of requisition forms. But also, they ran out of the forms to request more requisition forms. Ah, yes, the good old days when we believed in small, effective government. Anyway, the great call-up did, though, what it was supposed to do. It got troop numbers up. There were drilling and the kinds of moving from small standing army to large professional fighting force. These sort of kinks that occur, well, they occurred before the bullets were flying and while they were still on the continent. So this brings us to the Zimmerman telegram. Now the Zimmerman telegram, there's a lot made about it in history. So I'm going to kind of dig into it a little bit um, to kind of explain what it was and note for this, I'm using some very new sources. Not a lot of this stuff is declassified. And frankly, we've found a lot of the information uh, in the archives in Germany. So that really gives us a lot more support and understanding of, you know, the complete picture of how it happened and also how the British came about it. That is now uh, declassified. So we, again, we know we just know a lot more about the Zimmerman telegram um, than what earlier sources did. And I'm saying we, we learned this stuff. I mean, it's year 2020 right now. And we just learned this stuff in the last 10 years. So very recent. So the U.S. was really leaning into the war on the side of the Allies by mid to late 1916. The Germans were engaging in unrestricted naval warfare and sinking American ships. While much is made about this telegram being a diplomatic error by the Germans that cost them the war, I think that's kind of a short-sighted line of thinking. So I'm going to talk a little bit about why Germany did what they did. And I say why they did what they did, because we now know uh, what they were thinking, right? So first, the telegram was a telegram from Germany to Mexico, stating that if the U.S. declares war on Germany, it will support Mexican claims to some of the land lost in the Mexican-American War, specifically Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. British intelligence intercepted the transmission as they had broken the German and American code. Yeah, that's they actually needed a long story about it. They couldn't just send the telegram to Mexico uh, because all their lines were cut, the German lines. So they actually had to give it. Uh, they actually had to hand over the coded message to the United States to give to Mexico to handle through their diplomatic cable, which the U.S. had one with Germany to help facilitate uh, peace negotiations. Long story. But anyway, the British had to be able to break the German and the American code to do it. Um, I, I won't get into the details of it, but there's some terrific books on it. Um, anyhow, the British did give it to the United States. And at that point, Wilson realized the U.S. had its casus belly. Um, you know, the American press, they caught wind of this telegram and had a field day. The, the opinion pieces, they were largely in favor now of intervention. 
Uh, Wilson asked for and received a declaration of war in the German Empire. So, but was it a short-sighted move by Germany? So I'll dig a little bit deeper into kind of what I just said, um, just for those of us that that really, you know, enjoy those details. Um, At the onset of the war, the U.S. was neutral. And I mean neutral by American standards. So they're sending arms to both sides. So the British blockaded Germany and the U.S. refused to run the blockade. This resulted in the U.S. only selling supplies to the Allies. So the Germans seem to have thought, well, two can play at this game, right? And threatened to sink any ships bringing supplies to the Allies. The U.S. continued. So the Germans had to make good on their threats, and they began sinking ships in 1915. The Americans were upset. So Germany agreed to stop unrestricted submarine warfare. It did not take long for the Germans to realize that they you know, really needed to sink American ships to help stay in the war. So for perspective, in 1916, the U.S. exported $1 billion U.S. dollars in arms. So if your enemy has an unlimited supply of arms and you do not, you're in a tough spot to win a war of attrition. So the Germans picked up on this, picked back up on this whole unrestricted submarine warfare to balance the specter of American intervention. If the U S stayed tied up fighting on their home soil, they could not send nearly the number of troops and perhaps fewer arms to Europe. Now, remember that punitive expedition I spoke about? You may be thinking, Hey, why is this guy talking about that? Because it was important. and, And this is where it was. So at this point, that just ended. I mean, just ended. General Pershing was ordered back to the U.S. on January 18th. He was given the order to say, hey, by February, I think it was the 5th, you got to be back on the you know U.S. side of the border. Now, the Zimmerman telegram was sent January 19th. So the day after the U.S. issues an order saying, hey, we're going to pull our troops back, the Germans are like, hey, I got a deal for you, Mexico. So it seems the German command wanted the U.S. tied up in a war at home, right? I mean, that would only make sense. So while the, the, this new uh, Mexican government was finishing its civil war, it was extremely upset at another instance of the U.S. putting boots on Mexican soil. But there was a problem. And it was that even if Mexico wanted to agree to the German alliance proposal, they were broke. I mean, broke, broke. Like, they don't have enough gold for the national bank let alone surplus funds to purchase weapons. And if you're going to purchase weapons, who the the heck are they going to buy them from? I mean, the U.S. is clearly not going to sell them weapons, right? So that means they're going to have to go to the ABC countries, right? So that's Argentina, Brazil, and Chile. Now, they had just helped negotiate the Niagara Falls Peace Conference that helped avoid this Mexican-American War Part Two over the occupation of Veracruz in 1914. Yeah, the U.S. really liked sending troops into Mexico. But that's a whole different affair. You might see why Mexico does not like American troops at this time in history and why they might be open to a German alliance. But, I mean, given the fact that Argentina, Brazil, and Chile just helped negotiate a peace deal, it's unlikely they're going to want to sell arms for it, right? Now, even if they had the cash, which they didn't, the Germans, though, they did promise some financial help. Though, I mean, it's unlikely the Germans could have followed through on the support at this point in the war. And the Mexicans were well aware of that fact. I mean, they were struggling to keep up with the financial requests from like Bulgaria, Austria, Hungary, and the Ottomans, let alone, you know, somebody new now. And then let's not even get, you know, on how do you get the money over there. But it's a whole different issue. 
In the end, why go to war with the United States? They did just tacitly give recognition to Carranza as the legitimate government in his civil war. And he was kind of mopping up on it, so he still had a little bit to do. But he did get U.S. help. So the U.S. allowed him to use those trains on American soil to move his troops to battle via. When Carranza's military made the old pros and cons list, the decision was clear. This wasn't even a good idea to consider. So better yet, the U.S. officially recognized the Carranzan government on the 31st of August to ensure Mexican neutrality. The U.S. said, yes, Carranza is the president. Now, the Germans did help Mexico, right? With this official U.S. recognition, the government of Carranza could use like official channels to raise funds as nations do. And of course that meant access to U.S. markets and all those sort of good things. So that was good news for a broke government. Now the British finally showed the telegram to the U.S. on February 19th of 1917. Now you might be asking, why do they hold on to it for a month? Well, it took them a while to come up with a way to disclose how they came about possession of the telegram how they came about decrypting the telegram without giving away the fact uh, that the British were spying on the American undersea cables, but also that the British had broken the American code as well, right? You wouldn't want them to know that. So whatever the British spin and how they came about it, the U.S. joined the war in April. The Mexicans were declared neutral and the doughboys were on their way. 